0: That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com. Wise.com.
1: Productivity is this idea of having something to show for your time, putting something new in the world that wasn't there before. And, you know, like a thing, right? Like, here's the thing that I made. It's a deliverable, right? Versus creativity, I would say, is much more about observing what is already there in front of you and making new observations about it and also making new connections between things that already exist.
2: Hello, and welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Jenny O'Dell. And Jenny O'Dell is an artist and a writer living in Oakland, California. She's been an artist in residence at Recall GSF, better known as The Dump, the San Francisco Planning Department, the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, Facebook, the Internet Archive. She's been teaching internet art and digital and physical design at Stanford since 2013. And she's also the author of a new book called How to Do Nothing. And I wanted to have Odell on for a couple of reasons. One is that in the series we're doing about the intersection of attention and creativity and thought, <laughs> I think that you need to see it from some perspectives outside the ones we typically look at. And contemporary art is one of those. Um, she's got some beautiful lines in this interview, but, but she talks, quoting a, another artist, about the way in which what modern artists do is they're orchestrators of attention. They take people, they take us. And they force our attention to work in different ways and at different scales in a culture that is constantly trying to optimize us towards letting our attention work in one way and at one scale faster, faster, faster. And so she's a really, I think, interesting and beautiful perspective on this, both about what is the value of time and how to value it, what is the role that nature and natural context plays in pulling us out of an increasingly decontextualized society, what is the role that art and the poetics play in or can play in getting us to think of all this in a different way. Um, this is one of those fun interviews where it's somebody who really sees the world differently than I do and helps me see it a little bit, I think, more clearly or at least more openly than I did before. As always, my email is Kleinshow at Vox.com. Again, Show at Vox.com. We talk a bit in here about how much I appreciate the emails you all send. So thank you for doing that. But here is Jenny O'Dell. Jenny O'Dell, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: So you're an artist. How do you describe the art you do?
1: Oh um I describe it as not making anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's <like> a Zen <laughs> cone. Yeah. Um no really because I you know I, I don't want people to get any expectations. Um I I only create new contexts around things that already exist. Wait, tell me more about that. How did you start doing that? I mean, the best example I can give is is the project I did when I was an artist in residence at the dump in San Francisco. At the dump? Yes, the sorry, Recology SF, uh, which is technically, it's a transversation. It's not like a landfill, obviously, but um, normally artists in residence there would make something out of trash, like a sculpture or um, painting or some kind of thing, right? Um, and my project was to just monomaniacally researched the manufacturing origins of 200 objects. And then that turned into, you know, not just the origins, but like, why was it made? How was it made? What was it worth? How much is it worth now? Are there YouTube commercials of it? Um, Like the life story of this object. Um, And so the exhibition was just shelves of these objects with tags that you could scan on your phone and just read all of that information, which is clearly a lot of work (laughs) And time, but um I mentioned in in my book that the this woman was like, Did you actually make anything or did you just put things on shelves? And I was like, Oh, it's actually really profound. Like I did just put things on shelves. (laughs)
2: So tell me about one of the objects that sticks in your mind.
1: They all stick in my mind. They're like I am so like emotionally attached to all of them now. I mean, I found a Nintendo power glove.
2: (sighs) I wanted a Nintendo power glove so badly when I was a kid.
1: I mean, it's like it's awesome. I mean I haven't I haven't tested it, so I don't know if it still works. I I would suspect that it still works because most things in there still work. What did you find when researching a Nintendo Power Glove? Um like just, what what would I
2: not know about Nintendo Power Gloves?
1: Uh you know, honestly, like this isn't in fifteen. I it's like in <laughs> if you see the, the book, it's called the Bureau of Suspended Objects, it looks like a phone book. So like the amount of information is just like in there. It's like not in my I don't have recall of like trash uh-huh. details. <laughs> Um, but I, you know, like I did have to like learn about like the history of Nintendo and where their factories are and stuff like that.
2: So one of the things that was actually really helpful to me in your book is I'm a very literalistic person and I often have trouble understanding more conceptual art. And you talk a lot about that kind of art as being a way of reframing people's attention. You write that the only habit worth designing for is the habit of questioning one's habitual ways of seeing. And that is what artists, writers, and musicians help us to do. Can you tell me a bit about that definition of the job or approach to the to the projects?
1: Yeah, um, I actually I might borrow a phrase from this designer Sarah Hendren that I really love, um, where she describes what she does as being an orchestrator of attention. So she, I think she also would say that she, maybe she doesn't make anything. Um, she's just sort of pointing uh, the viewers' attention in different um, places and different patterns, and I think that's actually an incredibly generous and and productive. In my you know definition of the word productive thing to do because you're actually making part of the world accessible to someone that it wasn't accessible to before. Like that to me is the equivalent of creating something new. Um, So, you know, I give examples of, you know, seeing a John Cage performance and then leaving and realizing that there was this whole spectrum of sound in the city that I wasn't hearing uh, or seeing, you know, seeing this David Hockney video piece and then going outside and things literally look different i mean it's almost like being on psychedelics or something (laughs) can you talk about applause encouraged (laughs) oh yeah applause encouraged was this really great piece by um scott pollock who i went to school with um at sfai and um it's uh it was in san diego it's kind of on the cliffs overlooking the ocean and he created this roped off area with those ropes you know i don't know what you call them kind of like
2: like the velvet ropes. yeah
1: yeah like and you'd seen like in a theater or something Uh yeah and then he had—I don't remember what the number was—a small number of chairs. And then um, he had people, you know, sign up to do this, and they were um, ushered into their seats. <laughs> uh, they watched the sunset and they applauded. And then refreshments were served afterward. <laughs> um, and I just love that piece because it's—if you see the photo of it—it's just this line of chairs, people looking at the sunset with these ropes around them, and it's such a good illustration of this kind of act of framing, like. Yes, the sunset is a thing that we're all aware of, but it's obviously something you would experience differently as an event after which you applaud.
2: I love this idea of the orchestrator of attention because it doesn't just apply in a positive way to artists and writers and, and musicians, but it's what a lot of us do. I mean, as a journalist and for a long time the the editor of Vox, I was an orchestrator of a kind of attention. Um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is an orchestrator of attention. People who program television <laughs> yeah. like... Uh, People who set up store design. There's a lot of, there's a lot of orchestration of attention, um, and we rarely, I think, take seriously what we are doing to the attention. We only take seriously the underlying product. It's like what people are looking at is important. The fact that they are looking, we don't take it as that important.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I think also something else that gets taken for granted is quality of attention. So, um, you know, with a phrase like the attention economy. If it's an economy, it runs on currency, right? And mm-hmm. so attention is a currency. Um, and I think like in that formulation, it's sort of assumed that attention remains constant. Like there are interchangeable units of attention. Whereas in my experience, there are all different kinds of attention. Like I'm sure we've all had the experience of like five minutes that felt like an hour or mm-hmm. something, right? Like, Or, um, you know, like if you are in the middle of like falling off of something that feels very slow, right? Like that's a really literal example, but there's just, you know, different depths and sort of felt time scales like within attention, which I feel like, you know, I'm biased because I'm an artist, but I think there are a lot of art pieces that can help you learn to willfully move your attention around those different registers rather than having it kind of jerked around by by some kind of apparatus.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think for me, um, the last decade or so, I've just begun exploring my own attention. I developed a much more intense mindfulness practice. um, And it's really striking how the fundamental like mediating, I don't know what to call it. Um, The fundamental thing that mediates our relationship with the world is something we're not taught to pay any attention to, not taught that it has different dimensions. The idea is that I don't even like the idea of paying attention. Um, not for the currency and 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 the economic language, though now that you point that out, I, I noticed that too. But because I think that there is a societal expectation that if we're paying attention to something, the attention is under our control. I think that we always assume in the way we talk about attention that attention is under our control. And I think that it often isn't. It's very contextual, it's very um it, it's very evolutionary. It it there are a lot of ways to hijack it. And in a world where we've gotten so good at hijacking it, we've not given people much of anything in terms of education or tools or awareness to try to take it back. And I know that like every generation has felt this way and you can find this kind of discussion in Victorian times, And but it doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it's not a problem.
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I, um, you know, the book, the, it's sort of like a reaction to a moment that I had in 2016 on on one hand, but but it's also coming out, you know, of something much earlier than that that I feel like I experienced as an artist and just as a person of like I really enjoy basking in certain types of attention like I I think you know that that's it if you ask me why right there's no bigger why it's just like I really like observing things like I don't need there to be more of a reason than that I mean there there are all other sorts of like benefits you would get right from from being able to direct your attention but for me like first and foremost it's just like I enjoy being able to let my attention like widen into some sort of expanse for a certain amount of time I think I just had that experience enough where I was like I would really like to be able to share this or like I don't know like encourage it um and I think that's what I was doing with my art pieces before that and this is just kind of like a different way of conveying the same message.
2: Is that a natural thing for you? Is that something you cultivated?
1: I think it's probably pretty natural. Um, So my mom uh, takes care of foster children. Um, She's like a respite worker. So basically like a designated babysitter for foster children. And um, she claims that if you have like a baby and they're in a stroller and you go past like a shrub or like some kind of plant thing that like they'll like a lot of babies will like really like kind of grabbing onto the leaves and stuff and Mm -hmm. just like staring at it. And apparently I was like that. She also mentioned that she noticed when I was a baby that I was happier when I was outside. So she would just like everything that you would do inside, like I would just be like outside doing it instead, like on a blanket. (laughs) Um, And so I think like maybe some of it is that like from an early age, I, I grew up where there was kind of a lot of like visual stuff going on around me that wasn't on a screen I mean, that's my like unscientific hypothesis about like why I am the way that I am. But it's certainly like since then, you know, in all of my art, like it's it's clear that I have some sort of penchant for like really, really paying like super close attention to something and almost going down like a wormhole, like almost just like getting lost. Like the Bureau of Suspended Objects project at the dump, like kind of ruined my life for a while. I mean, I didn't see anybody. I didn't do anything that entire summer. I was just like in like trash world.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because um, there's this uh, internet joke of like people are saying they're a trash person, but for one summer. (laughs) I really was. (laughs) um, Something you're making me think about is I did a meditation retreat for a week um, last year. And by the end of it, the way my attention worked was really different. Uh, I could sit and just like stare at the landscape for an hour and be perfectly happy about that. And now I can't. And i couldn't before and that feeling that the attention i have is a particular form of attention that is adapted to my context i'm a journalist i'm on twitter god rest my soul like i'm you know in the news cycle i'm very highly tuned to getting in quick bursts of information and also constantly looking for new information and my attention is really built for that and then even just given a week of it being really different and trying to train it in a different way, I had this completely like beautiful, quite uh, quite striking experience where I had never been able to do that. I mean, I've always been someone with a, a kind of hyperactive form of focus. And I don't know, I think a lot of nowadays about the ways in which the attention I have in this society, in this job, in this role is not the only one I could have, but it's really hard change enough of your own context to change your to change like the way your attention works.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. Um I mean I I talk a little bit in the book about this model of the like ecological self, um, where it's sort of your the boundary between you and not you is somewhat fuzzy. Um and and because of that, certain types of places and contexts encourage certain types of attention. So um, that's why I insist so much on the importance of public space and parks in the book, because that those are the places where I feel able to exercise this type of attention. So it it is somewhat humbling, right? Because you're like, the things that you think you, as you said, like have control over are actually very much based on the environment of where you are. Um, but it's also nice to know that, right, like there's some kind of plasticity that you could go back and forth. Um, I think, you know, one of the things I don't enjoy about self-help books is this idea that Of the one, you know, the one stop or like the quick fix, right? But also this idea that once you fix it, it's fixed forever. That's Mm -hmm. just like not how people work. Um, And I think it's it's also somewhat unforgiving, right? Like if if you're not successful at doing whatever the book is trying to teach you to do, it's kind of your failure and Uh it's like your failure for good. (laughs) Um, Whereas this is kind of, I feel like it's a little bit more realistic, especially with something like the attention economy and the sort of reality that we all live in. It's like, it's going to be a back and forth and it's gonna be a little messy and like sometimes it's gonna be bad and sometimes it's gonna be a little bit, bit better. I mean, even for me, like um ever since the book has come out, I've been super busy because of book stuff and I'm kind of like where you are right now. Like it's it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> hey.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about that idea of the ecological self? Because it's an interesting one and, and it's a concept I wasn't familiar with before before I read it in your book.
1: Um well so in an ecology, right, you have you have entities that are identifiable, right? But um if you actually try to draw a hard line between them, it's it's difficult, right? Like, I mean, to give like a really uh local example, you have oak trees and then you have the fungus that grows with oak trees. They need each other to survive or to thrive anyway. Um, And if you actually look on, you know, a very micro level of where they intersect, it's not, they're not the same thing, but the the fungal cells are actually growing in between the spaces of the of the root cells, mm-hmm. right? So um, they're not quite one and not quite two. Um, and so there's a lot of things in ecology like that where, um, yes, there are animals and plants and distinct entities, but the way they're so intricately bound up that it's, it's really hard to kind of draw hard lines. And so um, I think you see the same thing with the self where yes, there is a self, like I'm Jenny, Um, but are you? mm, Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So,
2: and that's when they took mushrooms. Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, But yeah, so, you know, you have um, like the way I I talk about, like the way ideas form, like within a person and even like within a group, right? There are things that come from what you would say are outside of you that that are kind of intersecting in the space of yourself. And then you're kind of, I mean, even the book, right? Like when I look at the book, I don't see like I made something from nothing. I kind of see like the output of me having been in the place that I was at the time that I was passing through the world. And then like this was the result.
2: And to actually connect this back, I I did just make a psychedelic joke, but I had um, Michael Pollan on the show a while back. And this is something we were talking about then for for those who remember that episode or want to go listen to it, which is depending on the culture in which you grew up, you have very, very different senses of what I means. And depending on the culture you grow up, you're very differently attuned to um, you know, what should be absorbed in your sense of like, is your life working out? Is you are you a good person? And one of the interesting things about psychedelics is that that breaking of the wall a bit. I mean, you can go all the way, you know, to where there's no self, but but I think more commonly for people where it just begins to erode. And I always think that the really interesting lesson of that is just that our understanding of what Jenny is or what Ezra is, is completely dependent on very, very small alterations in brain chemistry and alterations in, in culture. And so this thing that we walk around with, um, the this sense that the boundaries, uh, the boundaries are firm for us, but the way in which they're firm is not firm. Yeah. Right. The way in which their firm could change really easily if we just grew up in a different place or if I just like added a couple micro drops of a chemical to your coffee, like everything would change for you. It's really we, we rest on a really thin thread.
1: Yeah, and it totally. And the more you look at it, the more it disappears. It's like it only appears stable in your peripheral vision or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I had that experience last week. Like I had, you know, this horrible cold and I just couldn't. I was, like, trying to talk to people, and I couldn't, like, form the types of sentences that I normally would or, like, thoughts, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was, like, very a very humbling reminder of, like, all of these other factors.
2: Yeah, I just had a—my we, we, uh, wife and I just had a child. And, um, it you know, like, my sense of self has totally changed, you know? I, I was sitting there with him this morning, very, very early this morning. <laughs> Children should sleep more. Um, <laughs> but it just— I had a really good idea of like what I was in the world and just now I don't and or now it's changing and it you know on the one hand it took a lot but on the other hand it's like the most banal human experience right like that the whole reason we're here is people keep kept having kids and it's just it, it's easy to get pushed over um, I wanted to 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 move us a bit into the book which uh, to this line um, which hit me really hard you wrote there may be a kind of engineer satisfaction in the streamlining and networking of our entire lived experience and yet a certain nervous feeling of being overstimulated and unable to sustain a train of thought lingers. And I kind of hated that line because I feel (laughs) like my last decade has been a journey from that first sentence to the second. So can you talk about your journey there and and sort of your noticing of that feeling?
1: Yeah. um, It doesn't even feel like a journey. I don't know how to describe this. It's like there's a there's like a layer of time or like experience that is like the everyday, right? Sort of banal, you know, like you're goal oriented and you're trying to do things in the way that makes the most sense and be somewhat efficient and, and whatnot. And then I just feel like underneath that layer, <laughs> there's this other more timeless time or something, something that's a little bit more seemingly arbitrary from the point of view of, of like ev- the everyday. And there are just moments for whatever reason like there's a lull or some kind of interruption where like that becomes apparent to me or kind of get a glimpse of it uh it's like you know you're on this narrow track of productivity and efficiency and then you um you just happen to catch a glimpse of this, this other thing right that is like so much more vast and kind of terrifying um and and potentially liberating um, and so I think like that's that's why I say it hasn't really been a journey. It's just kind of like sometimes I I catch a glimpse of this thing.
2: Yeah, that uh, that's that's an it's funny because you have it in the exact opposite direction that I took it. So um, here's my journey, which is I the the thing I really caught it onto in that sentence was a certain nervous feeling. Um, I was. Z- very very unproductive when i was young but but after i became an adult i became super productive right like i was really successful as a journalist and i built companies and i you know i like got more done than basically anybody i knew and yeah i was like pretty self satisfied about that and then things began to crack up for me and like those same tendencies began to drive me like over a place where i could manage it and as i started to work through that and do a lot of kind of self reflection The thing that I found, which I had not known was there that whole time, was that certain nervous feeling. How much of everything for me was being driven by this certain nervous feeling, like what's in the email? Like, Am I getting enough done? And when you talk about seeing a kind of timeless time underneath, what I kind of found underneath a lot of it was like a jagged frenzy, you know, that the things were being driven by a kind of nervous energy that could be channeled for good and could be channeled for bad. When I was young, I had a lot of like OCD tendencies and hypochondria tendencies, and my wife had the very um, good observation that when I told him, like, You're, I said to her once, "You're lucky you didn't know me then. I was kind of a mess." She's like, "No, you just found work. You're not different. You just found work." <laughs> yeah. And I was like, "Oh, that that's probably right." And I don't mean to overgeneralize my own introspection, but but I have come to think that that certain nervous feeling as the generator of a lot of productivity is something that is well hidden and for a lot of people over time, quite toxic.
1: Yeah. No, I totally believe that. I just read Barbara Ehrenreich's um, Natural Causes. Have That's her book about it? getting older. and Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, uh, I, I think it for anyone who's experiencing this like nervous feeling, highly recommend this book because- I'll put it on the list. Yeah. You know, it's just, um, she, you know, she talks about this kind of, um, I mean, it's very specific, but this kind of, drive to sort of like optimize one's life like ultimately to have a longer life right like that's Mm -hmm. what she's specifically talking about but like all of this frantic activity that even if and i think a lot of it's coming from a place of uh, an unexamined place right like um just this kind of oh i need to um i need to like optimize my health and my life um but never really like asking the question of like why or optimizing for what really like a bigger reason and um not to get too morbid, but she has this amazing paragraph about what happens to your brain right after you die, um, and it's just like it basically just liquefies. Um, and, <laughs> um, and I, I she's so funny too. It's like really dark humor, but I I read this in the park, uh, in the rose garden that I talk about in my book, and I just like looked up and I think I just started laughing, and I like looked around. It's like so beautiful, right? Like people are enjoying themselves, and I was just like, oh my god, like my brain is just, like, holding itself together right now, like, for now, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and, um, and I think, I don't know, like, I, the reason I love that book so much is because that that sentiment is such an antidote to that kind of, like, obsessive, like, optimization coming from this, like, kind of place of unexamined fear, because I think, you know, that book really forces you to, like, stare your own mortality in the face, and you think it's going to be scary, but actually it just makes you like so happy to be alive. It's like and then that is ultimately like really funny, like the, it's the ultimate punchline.
2: So I, I do not expect things to go here, but I'm, I'm actually glad they did, because I do think it's true that underneath that kind of sort ner- of nervous feeling, like if you really just kept digging under it and under it and under it, you get death anxiety. Yep. Right. Like that is like one of the truly great drivers of, of being human. And I think for a lot of folks, um, the kind of cult of productivity is a way of trying to answer the question of, I'm using this for something, right? Like I'm, you know, you can you can either imagine it's a kind of denial. Like if I if I keep getting things done, like maybe I'll just never die. But I think for I think in a deeper way, this desire to make sure there's a value on your time, that like your your time got spent for something, is about that feeling of scarcity. And I, when I think about myself, or when I think about a lot of people I know, I think that the question it raises is like, how do you value that time? You know, if you're, if you're just in the rose garden, looking at the roses, certainly for me, I can find it hard to quiet the voice that says I should be doing something. I only have, I only have a finite amount of this.
1: Yeah. I I kind of struggle with that in the book too, because it's like, am I, am I talking about nothing for nothing? Or am I talking about nothing for something, right? Like it's somewhere in between. Cause I do talk about how I think, um, this kind of, off time and ability to reflect is like very necessary for things like you know ultimately doing something or organizing or activism um and that's obviously like doing something but i but i almost even felt like when i was writing it some resistance to like making it be for something cuz that that's already starting to turn it into a kind of instrumental type thing um but i think what i love so much about like this occasional reminder of one's mortality or just how much you're not in control is like you know it makes it you can you can inhabit that perspective and look back at how kind of how silly it is to, to think that there are all these things that are under your control that aren't and it's just like i don't know it's like a some sort of valve that like lets off this pressure on you you know like you you kind of see yourself like running around like trying to like you know somehow achieve like the exact optimum of like something and then you kind of look at it from this other perspective and you're like what <laughs> I thought
2: this was one of the pretty interesting tensions in the book. Um, at, at times, you talk about doing nothing in the way that I think most of us would assume we know that term. And then at times you talk about it, you say, it's an active process of listening that seeks out the effects of racial, environmental, and economic injustice. You you quote Audre Lorde, calling it political warfare. And in those moments, it kind of felt like you were exchanging a capitalist way of valuing time for like a social justice or activist way of valuing time. And it seemed to me to raise a question of, do we need to value time? Like, do you does do you need to be trading the time for something, or can it actually just be ex- existence? To, to go back to more of the Eastern ways of thinking about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, I I think they're kind of connected in a weird way for me. Where, um, you know, I say elsewhere in the book that awareness is the seed of responsibility. So I, you know, and I also talk about Thomas Merton, the the Catholic um, monk slash hermit. Um who wrote a lot, especially in the sixties on uh social social justice issues, basically, but I think
2: there's this thomas s- merton, such an s j w yeah <laughs>
1: um, Ugh. yeah um so uh okay, so if you follow like the sort of path of this book where you know i'm I'm talking about species loneliness and like becoming aware of one's bioregion, and again, these i would say are primarily like pl- pleasurable experiences, right like it's it's a i i enjoy learning about these things, like from just almost like a childlike curiosity point of view. But I personally, I feel like you can only get so far down that path without without starting to feel some sort of responsibility. Right. Yeah. Like, And so I think that's how they're connected for me. Right. Like maybe nothing would just remain nothing. Like if you just only followed it up to that point, but just inevitably, I think like as humans, like you're, you're going to want, you're going to start to feel emotionally like bound up with these things and feel protective and and want to like help things flourish. So well, let's put yeah. a pin in that
2: because I actually want to follow through that journey a little bit more. Cause I've read the book and you've read the book, but but not all the audience has. And talk about the role that that place and outside plays in your idea of how people should think about resisting the attention economy. Because this isn't just a book about doing nothing. It's a book about actively choosing to be in other kinds of spaces because they change you in in ways that are necessary.
1: Yeah. Um, I think it comes back to the, the sort of ecological self model where I talk about, you know, being open to surprise and being open to being changed. And so for me, like a lot of that just in my own personal experience has has happened, you know, outside in public spaces. I also have like kind of an ode to AC Transit in the middle of the book. Um, You know, it's like the bus as a space where you're thrown together with strangers that you have no instrumental reason to care about. Um, And you just have to kind of sit with the reality of like other people who are completely outside of your, you know, literal filter bubble and just kind of more like filter bubble mentality, like things you have some uh, logical reason to care about. Um, So I think it's this kind of, it's been important for me to be in... These spaces where you can become decentered in that way, where you can, where the, the reality of others, both human and non-human, becomes palpable to you.
2: One of the things I really resonated to in the book is so much of the—I don't love the term attention economy—but so much of what we do now is about robbing ourselves and our lives and our information of context. It's about thinning out the context, um, Twitter being, I think, the like the apex predator in this um, where there's just literally no context. But, you know, e- even in my own uh, time as a journalist from blogging up to, you know, Vox and, and, and the Washington Post, where you're writing articles for an audience that does not know you as well. And it, it does seem to me that the big argument you're making is that the space of resistance here is... A continuous and like constant reapplication of context to your own life, like the con- like the bioregional context you live in, the kind of context of who you're talking to, that that you almost have to understand this is a as a war for like context is being taken from you, and then something really valuable is taken, and so you have to constantly be trying to put it back and making choices of being in a place where you remember that you are in context, and other people can have a context for you. Is that a fair way of putting it?
1: Yeah, and I, you know, now that you're saying it, makes total sense that I would say something like that because I'm just thinking back to the dump, you know, and like that <laughs> whole project was, right. you know, me trying to basically like surround these objects with as much context as possible, and just in doing it, it was an exercise for me, it's like an endurance exercise in finding context, you know. Yeah. And and something that I found was that it really literally changes the way you see the object. I mean, you read it completely differently, like having this information, right? Like it only becomes more and more interesting and, and more and more three-dimensional. Um and, and so I I worry about that um it, I worry about it becoming harder to do that, to mm-hmm. to seek context or to even think, to have the thought to seek context. Um this seems to be slipping away and from my point of view as an artist, like I now I'm aware of how much of the content is influenced by the context. And so that doesn't bode well for anything.
2: Yeah, this is a convergence for us. So as a what I do is explanatory journalism and the way I basically say that is explanatory journalism is journalism focused on context, not on the new thing, but on the the surrounding things. Um, you have a line in here, again, where I felt a little bit overseen um, where you write. I think about how much time and energy we use thinking of things to say that would go over well with a context-collapsed crowd, not to mention checking back on how that crowd is responding. And I think about how differently I write when I'm writing for Twitter than when I'm doing this podcast or even when I'm writing an article where um, in this podcast, I say a lot of stuff that doesn't work, (laughs) (laughs) that doesn't come out right, where I've doubled back. And I don't really edit it and I don't worry about it. Um, I trust that the audience is a context for me and they're going to listen to me generously. And on Twitter, sort of all the way on the other side of the spectrum, not to only pick on Twitter, I'm so concerned with how an audience that either doesn't have context for me or has a terrible context for me is going to read something that I'm quite almost paralyzed in in the medium. And then you're like looking back to see like, do you get it right? Like that, you become a much smaller version of yourself when people don't have context for you.
1: Yeah, I think I I was reading an old journal of mine, um, which is another you know context, right? Like writing mm-hmm. to yourself. Yeah. Um, and I, I I found that my shorthand for that kind of that version of the self that you're talking about was like the tiny circle, which I think I originally I like meant as like the tiny like the the photo or like the profile pic like on uh-huh. on Twitter. But I just started referring to this like the tiny circle is like is that person that's like basically saying the lowest common denominator of any possible expression and is like very concerned about how it would go over with this anonymous crowd also just like the format of it right it's like short it's constant it's exactly the opposite of you know yeah, like a podcast or mm-hmm. a conversation or knowing someone over a long period of time and having context for things that they say to you you know i think there's there's a place for for both but for someone who spends all their time on something like twitter where Twitter starts to seem like the world and that starts to seem like dialogue. Um, I wonder about what that would do to your thought process, like all the way back, even before you're, you're saying anything, just the way you would even form thoughts.
2: Well, if you want to know, you should look at political journalism right now, because <laughs> like that is functionally how it works um, for a lot of people. Um, one of the the things you also said in the section that I, that I wanted to focus on for a minute, because I do think I don't want to only put this on Twitter. I think in general, our communications are transitioning towards being decontextualized. So another version of this that I think about a lot is when I was young, I'm somebody who likes talking on the phone. And when I was younger, I had lots of friends who I spoke on the phone with Um, and lots of people spoke on the phone. And when I talked to people who were older, like older journalists, for instance, they'll they'll talk about how they had colleagues who they would call and just like talk about their articles with for hours. And now I think that a lot of that, when people feel that moment of loneliness, when you're in a hotel room somewhere, uh, you know, maybe you call your partner if you have a partner or a parent or something. But I think a lot of people just go on Facebook or on Instagram, um, which is not... I don't want to call that not a form of social connection, but it has a lot less context than somebody who you call every couple of weeks and you guys have a 45-minute conversation. And I worry about what it's doing to us to move to these much more decontextualized forms of conversation. So you write, what if we spent that energy Instead, on saying the right things to the right people or person at the right time, what if we spent less time shouting into the void, being washed over, shouting return, and more time talking in rooms to those for whom our words are intended? Can you just talk a little bit about that idea, about the trade-off between going for this big scale where we're talking to everybody versus choosing to talk to fewer people who can hear us more fully?
1: Yeah, that part comes right after I mentioned a book called No Sense of Place um which is where Dana Boyd who um, is is great. Yeah, amazing. um is kind of something that's the book that she credits with her idea of of context collapse. And he has this thought experiment in, in it where he says, "Okay, I went, you know, on a vacation as a college student and I came back and I obviously had a different version of the story for my friends, my professors and my parents." Mm-hmm. And then he says, "What if somebody threw me a party where all of these groups were present and said, "How was your trip?" <laughs> <laughs> um and you know either you're going to like offend your grandma <laughs> or or you're going to have a really boring version like it's not um going to offend anyone but it's also not going to appeal to anyone it's not directed to anyone it's just sort of like a mush version of your of your vacation story um and so i really loved that that kind of description of context collapse and i think it gets at what is lost um when you have these kind of contextless interactions i mean i'm just thinking about a a letter that somebody just wrote me a couple of weeks ago. um, Someone who had read an essay that I wrote about a Creek that goes through Cupertino. um, And she used to live in Oakland and kind of knew some of the places I had talked about in my other writing. Anyway, she wrote this, you know, beautiful letter. um, And she included this like zine of a walking tour of Oakland. That's a lot of the same places that I go to because she had read that and knew that I had gone to those places and just, you know, it's it's mail. (laughs) Uh, Like it came out of an envelope and it's handwritten. I don't know. It was just like, that the value of that interaction and how much it was intended specifically for me mm-hmm. um, was just like the polar opposite of like this kind of like spray of images, <laughs> you know, on Instagram or something where it's like, I happened to see it.
2: Yeah. I am, um, I'll, I'll tell a sort of story for this audience actually about, about this, which is I have over the years walled myself off from most of the feedback I get. I don't ever look at my mentions on Twitter. I don't have an email address on my articles anymore. I just, I didn't think that the signal noise ratio was good. And I didn't think the kind of feedback it got me looking for was good for the work. Um, it was too much feedback I felt for a human to to absorb, um, in, at least in a healthy way. And so I felt good about all that. And the only kind of feedback I check is the email inbox for this show. And the letters people write me from this show because they have me in their ears for, you know, potentially three hours a week, it's too much. Um, are just really beautiful and they're really like. I, I don't often, always get to respond to them, but they're, um, they're really real, you know. There's a lot of context. There's something they're telling me about their life because I told them something about my life, right? I'll get letters about the story I told to you here about, you know, having OCD and death anxiety. Like I will get letters about that, um, and it's just a really different form of communication. And I, I, I really, I go back and forth though, and I, I'm, I'm, I assume you have to face this choice as an artist. You can have a a project like the dump, um, you know the the suspended
1: bureau of suspended sorry, the bureau objects. of suspended
2: objects, and then there I'm sure you get opportunities to have projects that could reach a much more massive scale, but be a lot less specific, um, have to be a lot easier for someone like me, for instance, to absorb. How do you think about that that trade off? Because that seems to me to be the trade off you're you're talking about here.
1: Right. I don't know. I mean, I. Like, I just feel like there's so much. There's just so much, right? Like, uh-huh. there's there's enough of that. I, I don't, I feel like... Um,
2: and you do feel competitive with it.
1: Yeah, I just, um, like, the, you know, to come back to that letter, right? Like, getting one letter like that from someone is is worth so much, right? Like, just even the experience of reading it. Like, it's like, oh, this this person, like, I wrote something and this person read it and understood it, mm-hmm. like fully understood it. And is like communicating that to me, not like this person clicked on it. I don't know. It's like everyone clicks on everything. I just feel like I don't, <laughs> I don't need to add to that. I would, I, the only times when I feel like I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting any kind of traction or when, um, I feel like I'm in these kind of more specific contexts. I mean, that said, you know, I just wrote a book. So, Sure. Uh, you know, but but even that, I mean, I feel like it's sort of been circulating through like kind of specific communities, at least from what I can tell. Online. It's a
2: specific kind of book, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm curious how you actually thought about conceiving it, because it's a book that um, I'm trying to write a book um, and it is brutalizing me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that has been hard in it for me is having a structure that I feel like will make sense to the world Um the process of writing a book the thing that i didn't understand how hard it would be is there's a lot in my head that makes sense where if you have to explain it at that level of detail turns out maybe you don't really you have been able to skip over things in it you know you've been able to shorthand things for yourself that you can't and so that act of like taking the whole model of how you think about the world and making it comprehensible to somebody who isn't in you with all the experiences you've had and all the things you've seen is really hard and in some ways alienating from your own mind, um, and I'm curious because this is a very personal book, and the things you're writing about are are specific in some ways to you. The places you go, the 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 ways you feel better in nature, how you thought about that relationship with the the reader as you were structuring it, um, uh, you know, before you knew the reader.
1: Yeah, um, I was really lucky that I, um, you know, the book came out of a talk that I gave at I/O, um, which is a conference in Minneapolis.
2: What what does it stand for? I don't think it stands for anything.
1: It's just no, e- just I O. E- it's <laughs> not, not I. O. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's, A-O. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's A O. Yeah. It's a sort of art and technology uh, type conference, and, um, and so I wrote the talk for that conference, having been there the year before. So I kind of felt like I knew the audience fairly well, and the audience tends to be um, you know people who make stuff and also people who might find themselves in kind of an uncomfortably in dis- interdisciplinary area which is kind of where I find myself. So um so the original talk how to do nothing which is basically chapter 1 of the book was addressed to that audience. But you know most of what is in chapter 1 that that was the talk and I actually had the kind of question that you're asking like the time when I wrote that talk in in 2017 of like is this so specific to me that that nobody will understand it. But I did feel like I was describing a feeling, like a feeling of, of anxiety. And it was just like one way that I had found to kind of address it. And then I was just totally blown away by the response to that talk. Um, I had like so many people tell me like, you you put into words like this feeling that I had. Obviously, these people like, you know, don't live in Oakland, don't go to the Rose Garden every day. Like, you know, but, but they were like this, it, the analogy kind of, it worked. Um, and so, that kind of emboldened me to write the rest of the book the same way.
0: WISE is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates?
2: You teach art at Stanford, and that's a kind of interesting space to be in right now. How has that figured into your thinking? What have you learned doing that as you've tried to sort of bring the culture of what you do to like the epicenter of attention economy culture and productivity culture?
1: Yeah, um, I don't think this book would have been written if I didn't have this job. Um, And it's the book is actually dedicated to my students um, because this is now my... uh, Almost the end of my sixth year or fifth year. I lost track. Uh, I've been there for a while, and a lot of my students are not in the humanities. Um, So I have a lot of product design, STS. I guess maybe that's humanities. What is STS? Science, technology, and society. Um, And then, you know, engineering. So um basically disciplines where um I, I wouldn't know because i studied english in undergrad but i it seems fairly goal oriented right mm-hmm. um and uh and there's probably a better way to do things than than other ways right so they come to my class and you you know they have someone telling them not even in a hand-wavy way like there really is no right answer um in an art class and um and i i find myself saying things like you need to give yourself twice the amount of time that you think you need for an art project because half of the time isn't going to look like anything. You're not going to be making anything, quote unquote, right? Making anything. It, you might be walking around, you might be talking to a friend, like, but you need to have, if you don't give yourself that time, it's not, there's no substitute for that. Um, so already, like, you know, years ago, I was kind of insisting on like, how to do nothing to my students. And then I I felt the similar tension that I have in this book of when I would try to, argue for the importance of this to especially kind of students who really needed to feel like they were doing A to achieve B or, or whatnot. Cynically, I would have to say things like, well, if everyone is distracted all the time, it seems like if you learned to pay better attention, you would have an advantage, right? Like I'm like <laughs> selling it as this kind of like life hack or something, yeah, uh, which is like sad to have to do that. But anyway, so it's it's been kind of uh, my my ongoing uh, practice that kind of maintaining this bubble of experimentation and and playfulness and trying to like create, you know, a space where they feel safe to do that um, while still, you know, making the point that good art is conceptually rigorous and takes, you know, work. Um, so it's not this kind of like, oh, I, I art's easy because you can just make anything and it'll be art. like, no. Um, it's There's just, no right answer,
2: but there are wrong answers. Yeah,
1: I mean, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that's been, um, and I think just, you know, for me, having to you know, over and over again make the argument for the value, and I, I don't even want to say value, but, you know, the value of art to a certain type of mindset has been really helpful.
2: I want to talk about something you said a minute ago in that answer about how half the time it won't look like anything at all. Um, something that it made me think about was the difference between creativity and productivity. I'm curious if you, how you would define the difference between those two.
1: I mean, one thing that I that I kind of critique in the book about the idea, the traditional idea of productivity is this idea of having something to show for your time, putting something new in the world that wasn't there before. And, you know, like a thing, right? Like, here's the thing that I made. It's a deliverable, right? Versus creativity, I would say, um, is much more about kind of observing what is already there in front of you and making new observations about it and also making new connections between things that already exist and that might not result in a new thing like you know I keep going back to the dump but like I didn't make anything there but I think most people would say that project was creative the thing that I created was context Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't you know a thing that you can sort of point to um, so it doesn't really appear to be productive. It was more like I was kind of applying information in context to something that already existed.
2: This is something that I've been thinking a little bit about, um, in part because I often feel that I am I think it is easy to orient towards productivity rather than creativity. And I think of like the like the signal thing here's a to do list. You know, when I get up in the morning, it's really easy for me to write up a list of all the things I need to do. There are emails I need to respond to, a piece I need to write, like a like a meeting I need to call into, a hundred things I need to get done around the house. And I can have this day where I'm just like running through the list and I'm really productive. And creativity feels like very opposed to that. It needs this kind of weird space and you don't know when it's happening and it's not very measurable. And like productivity feels to me about what is, and like creativity about what isn't, in some in some way that I have trouble putting my finger on. And the reason I worry about the two intention, and and particularly for you know for me and my work and life, because I there's a real difference between being just endlessly reactive to the news cycle and also you know coming up with things that maybe the news cycle should be about. Is it's so easy for productivity and productivity software and productivity approaches and tracking and habits and hacks to uh, expand, where you've gotten so efficient, you've squeezed out the space for creativity. Right. Because there's no space. Yeah. And like creativity, to to your point a bit, it seems to me to need space to grow.
1: Yeah. And, and humility, too, to like, you know, admit that you don't know how it's growing. <laughs> uh-huh. um, how or why or when. Um, I mean, it's a little bit like sleep. I kind of love, as a thought experiment, like taking certain types of mentalities to their extremes, right? Like if you were really, really a hyper-efficient human being like like a machine right you wouldn't sleep like it, right. doesn't, it doesn't make sense to sleep and you also wouldn't eat and all these other things right and you wouldn't die Did but whatever eat? yeah <laughs> um and there are you know like people who are trying to get away with like not sleeping yeah. as much right but um personally i um i have had crazy dreams ever since i was a kid um i had a bunch of crazy dreams last night and i have lucid I dreams one? um so i had a lucid dream where, this is going to sound so weird. Um, had, I'm I'm here for this. Okay, so <laughs> a lot of people, when they have lucid dreams, they like to fly around. Yeah. This is what I've heard. I've had them for so long that I've honestly moved on from flying around. And I like to just, like, look at stuff because I know, I know I'm know i dreaming. It's like being in your own brain's VR, right? I'll just, like, pick things up and look at them and see if they're, like, accurate. You're,
2: like, fact-checking your dream.
1: Yeah. and And, like, I like seeing, like, how things are wrong. Like, I went into my bathroom in my apartment in this lucid dream, and there was no toilet. And I just thought it was hilarious to me. I was like, oh, forgot the toilet. And so I was looking at this text, and I noticed that it was basically placeholder text. And the more I looked at it, it turned into gibberish. Then it turned into just lines, and then it just dissolved. Like, my brain, like, couldn't hold on to, to like, rendering text. And the text clearly never said anything in the first place, right? So anyway, this is like a typical night did for me. Did you teach
2: yourself to lucid dream or did you just always have that capacity?
1: I've always, I'm a really uh, light sleeper. That's huh. why I have them. Yeah. I don't want to say I come up with ideas in my dreams because like that's not really true. But I am so familiar with them that I am i am very fascinated by the ways in which I can see different experiences being combined. And if I'm so lucky to have a lucid dream, I can I can actually see that happening in real time. Um, And so I have real respect for like, whatever the hell is going on in my mind when I'm sleeping, I will not pretend to understand that I, I refuse to kind of like, I probably won't make art about it. I don't want to like appropriate it. I don't want to think that like sleeping is somehow also work for me as an artist. But, um, you know, it's just kind of this, like, it's clearly important and necessary and doing something. And I'm, and I'm just gonna leave it. You know,
2: I was think it's such a telling question about people. How do you feel about sleep? Um, so I used to be a hundred percent like dogmatic in the sleep is a cousin of Death Crowd. I hated sleep. I did everything I could to sleep less. And it's only been the last couple of years where I'm like, I feel terrible all the time. <laughs> 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 I was like, actually, you know, um fighting yourself around sleep is a is a crazy thing to do. Um but I do think that there's this question of like it, it goes back to something we were discussing earlier. The hard part about sleep is is that is that feeling of I have finite time and here it's just disappearing into sleep and I don't know I've like I I I think I'm better at recognizing the importance of sleep for for one if I'm going to continue having any time uh, among other things I need to sleep but uh but but that feeling of you know well I'm just losing this like that that's one I still struggle with
1: right well I have a book recommendation for yeah. you um It's called, I don't remember the author. It's like, and it's not, it's not recent. I found it in the Stanford library. It's called The Nature and Function of Dreaming. It's super dry. It's like an Oxford neuroscientist or Uh something. Um, And it's about the nature and function of dreaming. Um, And, and you don't need to remember your dreams, like for these, these functions to be, you know, happening. Right. And again, I don't want to make sleep seem functional in that kind of reductive way, but reading that will definitely give you an appreciation for just like what is happening. Um, and like how different it is. And he also makes this really interesting point where he has kind of a spectrum of consciousness. And there's like fully awake, analytical, like solving a problem. And then there's like totally asleep, like, like deep, deep, deep asleep. Mm -hmm. And then there's all of the stuff in the middle and kind of like more of a gradient than I really appreciated. Like, obviously, there's a lucid dream that's kind of almost awake. There's a kind of like, just above that, like you're basically awake, but you're sort of like, uh, maybe this, maybe that's when you're like saying things, you know, mm-hmm. to, to your partner in bed, like you don't realize. And then there's like daydreaming. There's just like a, a lot of in between. And, and it really, you know, I hadn't thought about it until then. I was like, I thought it was just like awake and sleeping. Right. But there's all this stuff in between. And, and then he kind of makes this suggestion at the end that knowing that might help you move around in that spectrum on purpose.
2: Huh. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Something I I think about sometimes, particularly right now in my life, is the connection between sleep and attention and, and creativity. When you're not sleeping, your attention is just garbage. And it actually pushes a little bit towards... I do think that there's a connection between being the sort of person who wants to be very productive, wants to cut down on sleep, and so can only be in a narrow sense productive. Because... I, I took a um, book leave about a year ago. Um, and it was, I was out in Half Moon Bay. And it actually is what led to me leaving DC and, and coming out here for two reasons. One is I spent so much more time outside to, to go to some of the things you've been talking about. And I had not realized I needed that. And I just felt so much better, so much better. But the other thing was that to do this book, the core work of it was reading, it was reading and reading and reading and reading. And actually, it's also true to do this podcast. And I found that there were a lot of things I could do if I wasn't sleeping enough, but reading real books wasn't one of them. And so anything that took uh, real kind of cognitive effort and attention, anything where you were, I was really going to tax my attention, uh, which were often the most valuable things I could do, I just needed to sleep more. And so when I was on this book leave, I was constantly taking midday naps because I would like, be reading something and I would fall asleep and I'd be like, all right, I just have to let myself sleep for a bit so I can come back to this. And that's not something like modern workplaces are set up to allow you to do. Um, and it's still not something you can do if you're, not, if, if you're not sleeping enough and can't sleep enough. But there's a way, again, not to not to make sleep overly functional, but it is to say that if you care a lot about your attention, um, shortchanging yourself on sleep, at least in my experience, is a really bad way to manage like the rest of the way you mediate with the world. It actually forces you into a sort of narrower existence than you would otherwise be in.
1: Yeah, totally. I know exactly the feeling you're describing. The like kind of sleep deprived, like, I mean, n- probably not a coincidence that um, when I'm like long term sleep deprived, is when I'm like the most susceptible to being on my phone all the time. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Um. And it's and then that sort of dissatisfaction then like drives mm-hmm. that engagement. Yeah. I mean, it's so weird. Um. Yesterday, I had um, I woke up at eight. And then I, I only had like 45 minutes left to sleep and I could have just gotten up and I felt terrible and I went back to sleep. Then I had this like very overdetermined, like I, sometimes I have dreams that are just like really obvious metaphors uh-huh. where I'm just like, okay, brain, like I get it. Like, um, and they're like the same, like two or three over and over again. So I just had like a classic, like Jenny stress dream, um, which was like not enjoyable. But when I woke up, I felt so much better. It felt like, I don't know like, some trash had been, like, cleared out of my brain or something, you know?
2: I think a lot about the most dystopic single line of, like, the modern tech era was, in my view, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, saying, our competitor is sleep. Oh, my God. I'm not saying it wasn't a true line. I think it is a true line. But there is something to that. There is something to the way in which these kind of attentional spaces or uh, like attentional hijackers are like trying to encroach into into everything. And then it gets into a cycle. The more tired you are, certainly I find it the same way, the more susceptible I am to getting caught on Twitter or Instagram, because like I'm not going to be reading a book if I'm exhausted or Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever it might be. Um, there is an interestingly positive feedback loop between distracting people from sleep and then keeping them on very distracting platforms uh, that is like good for Bottom lines, but probably bad for people.
1: Yeah. And not just sleep. Now I'm thinking about like just any kind of interruption. Like years ago, uh, I was taking the Caltrain when I lived in San Francisco. I was taking the Caltrain down to Stanford. um, And I would always leave myself a really huge buffer just in case because, you know, like Mm -hmm. Barton Caltrain is weird. And I just barely missed the Caltrain on the Bart. So we all got off and like the Caltrain was just, you know, gone. And there wasn't another one for an hour. And I just sat in the sun for an hour and I didn't really have anything to do. Maybe this was before I had an iPhone or I just, I maybe I wasn't using it that much or something. Anyway, I just sat there Um, and it was such a gift, (laughs) you know, like, it was just like, I think you can get into you get like a momentum, right? Like, and then, and then the momentum is sort of like self-sustaining. And then all it takes is like just being kind of jerked out of that by something, some kind of circumstance. And only from that circumstance are you able to look back and, and sort of like ask bigger questions, you know, or like uh, make higher level decisions about like what is even like the smaller value systems that you've been like acting by. Like, you know, are those just seeing those from a higher point of view? Something you're making me think about there. Um,
2: and also one of the more depressing parts of my life is how much I've come to love being on planes. Oh, me too. There's not a lot of good. I mean, planes are amazing. It's amazing you can fly places. That's great. Um, I don't get to lucid dream, so I'm not tired of it. <laughs> but I, I don't buy the internet on planes, and I just sit there and I read and I doze and I read and I doze and like then I'll I'll often journal on planes, and I find that they are like nothing is close. So they are my most creative space. Like by the time it's a joke at, uh, uh, among some people who know me that like I'll come off a plane with like. Book ideas and new yeah. projects Vox needs to yeah, do, yeah. and like it, it's just it's a really I almost enter like what feels like a, a fugue state, and then I'll think, well, that was great. I should do this. I mean, I should just put myself in a room and not have internet and just sit there, and I can't seem to do it. Yeah, like I I just distract myself. I will look at my phone or I'll you know like leave and do something else, and I find it a really depressing thing about myself that I can know that I I really like this. And and really benefit from this enforced uh, like undistracted space. And certainly, I have the resources in my own life to create it. And I can't that. Um, I mean, distraction. We talk about attention as a as something we control, and distraction is something we don't. But I often feel it's the opposite. That like distraction is the force that we're often very attentive to. Like we want to distract ourselves. And attention is the thing that we are much more passive about. Like I have a drive towards distraction that if you put me in a a situation where I can't fulfill it, then I will enter this like different attentional space. But I have a lot of trouble just actually imposing that discipline on myself.
1: Yeah, that's I love the plane for the same reason, by the way, but. Um, I have that a quote from William James in, in my book where he basically says that there's no such thing as sustained attention. There's only bringing your attention back over and over again uh-huh. to the thing that's in front of you. And because we're predisposed to seek out new things, new things that are happening, that means finding new perspectives on that same thing, um, which I really like that because it kind of, you know, it addresses this fundamental like uh, penchant for being distracted um, and it explains to me why, you know, the moments in which I feel I'm not distracted are actually when it's just that there's something so absorbing in front of me that it is bringing my attention back to it over and over again. Um, like a really good book or for me, it's bird watching, um, or, you know, just any, there's certain things that I feel like demand attention for different people, for different reasons. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, in the absence of a plane right like maybe if there's like a place some place you can go especially like a place that you can wander through that is like either new or somehow fascinating to you like to me that is just the the ultimate antidote to all of that i mean for me it's mountain view cemetery um here in oakland where um it's a great bird watching spot so you i mean for me i like have to be paying attention because you just birds can come out of nowhere but it's also the way it's designed you know I, I go there all the time. I'm literally going there later today and I I don't have a set path. And so I will just kind of take a turn for no obvious reason. And I think that that some, something about existing in that kind of space and mindset is if you can't shut yourself away in a room without your phone, that's the other thing that works for me.
2: The word mindfulness has begun to um, mean for people a meditation practice but you had a lot of practices in here. The way you describe birdwatching, the way you describe being in nature—that William James quote—that seemed to me like you were describing mindfulness practices. Do you yeah. think of them that way?
1: Yeah, I think they could definitely be understood that way. Um, I'm actually really bad at the sort of traditional form of meditating, <laughs> like just sitting. Uh-huh. Right. Um, well, that depends, actually, on what I would be looking at. But um, like sitting with my eyes closed right. would be very hard for me. So um, you know, I think there. Are for me, it's sort of like anything that gets you outside of your own head. That is like calling your attention to it, um, is maybe like an accidental experience of mindfulness, right? Like even for someone who's not specifically setting out to do that. I mean, just yesterday, I was eating lunch at this bench on the Stanford campus under a tree, and I, I see this tree all the time. I feel like it's very familiar, and um, I heard this weird noise. And then and I it was clearly like some weird bird noise, but I, I didn't recognize it, which is weird for me because I feel like I know most of the Stanford birds. And then I saw a woodpecker come in, uh, land on the branch, go inside a hole. And then like this noise got louder and it was basically baby woodpeckers. Oh, cool. Um, And I just I don't even like when this kind of thing happens, like I didn't I think I was maybe late for class like I didn't know what time it was. I didn't know what day it was. I wasn't like all of my like personal anxieties just like went away for this like few minutes where like, especially with birds, right? Like you don't know when they're going to come and when they're going to leave. So I was just like totally focused on this, like, you know, this amazing phenomenon in front of me and thinking about how like I'm just, you know, this human eating my lunch. Meanwhile, there's like baby woodpeckers in this living in this tree.
2: And so you have that kind of feeling of flow. Time drops away.
1: Yeah, which I think is what people are seeking with a mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. It's just that I kind of came to it from this other angle.
2: The reason I like the idea of mindfulness, uh, when I started meditating, I thought of it as a stress relief practice, which it really wasn't for me. It it doesn't work that way for me. Um, And I think for a lot of people, it actually doesn't work that well for that. It was very different when I understood it as just being mindful, just like actually being being. The way I always try to describe it, or maybe I read this somewhere, is that it's being attentive to your own attention. Like it is this constant effort of being attentive to your own attention, and it, sitting is fine. Um, but it seems to me that it's probably almost better to be doing it in the actual world. I mean, a lot of a lot of the stuff I read um, in, in in the in the mindfulness space is all about how, well, when you get better at this, well, then you actually keep your eyes open, and when you get much better at this, then you're doing it when you're actually out in the world. That it's not something you just do on a cushion. So it seems to me you've you've possibly ascended to a, a guru status here.
1: <laughs> I mean, it was just like, you know, so I read that Barbara Ehrenreich book about the, the brain brain liquefaction mm-hmm. in the park. And then I had to go to Safeway after that. <laughs> and I was standing in line at the Safeway and I was like maybe being a terrifying level of mindful for Safeway, you know, like just yes. like looking around like oh my God, Like we're all here and there's all these brains that are also holding themselves together and look at all these products and, you know. But it,
2: this is a, th- sorry, this is something I'm I'm fascinated by. There is a, there is so much stimulus input into us that a dulling of our attention to the world is really important. I mean, this is a, a thing uh, that the, the psychedelics researchers all say that part of what seems to be happening um, with something like LSD is you're just losing your ability to filter. Right, Too much stuff is lighting up, um, which is fun and it's great and, and can be very, very profound. But you can understand why uh, the brain would have to shut that down to, to mostly uh, be capable of operating in the world. Or when I got back from um, my uh, silent retreat, I was not a safe driver. It was like I was getting too distracted by trees and you know that that experience you talk about in the safe way that I'm really fascinated by, particularly as our world gets louder how much mental energy goes into filtering out the noise so that we can keep operating. But something is being lost in that filtration.
1: Yeah, right. It's like AirPod culture. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I, have, I have the same kind of issue where um, sometimes when I am walking, I realize that I'm like looking at some, I don't know, foliage or something on the side of the sidewalk. And I I just like slow, I get slower and slower. And then I'm just not walking anymore. <laughs> It's like my version of like the driving problem. But yeah, um, I mean, I think, again, that's why um, I think it's interesting, and maybe useful to at least learn about how to move your attention between registers. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, obviously, we we do have a necessary kind of protective impulse um, to just be able to like get through the world. But I think you know, you risk if you get too good at that, right, then you risk um, not being able to let anything in or not being able to decide to at a certain moment let a lot of stuff in.
2: This is going to be a little bit of a turn of the conversation, but something I want to make sure we cover. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the maintenance of care art you describe?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, so I I talk about merely Lederman Ukeles, who um, I feel like sort of a kindred spirit because she's uh, an artist in residence with the New York Sanitation Department <laughs> um, and has been since the 1970s. Um, it's an amazing thing that the New York Sanitation Department has an artist in residence. Well, I would I not have expected that. Well, I think she kind that. of made that position for herself, um, whereas, like, I'm, you know, right. this residency existed. But, um, so she's kind of known for doing work involving maintenance, so some of her, her best-known works involved her kind of washing the steps of the the institution where she was exhibiting, she also shook hands with eighty five hundred sanitation men uh, in in New York and told each one of them thank you for keeping New York City alive. And she writes about um, this kind of devaluing or um, overlooking of maintenance uh, as something that she became very aware of as a mother. So she found herself doing a lot of repetitive tasks. Um, that she felt were not kind of recognized as, as work or as productive. They're kind of just maintaining the status quo. Um, so she wrote uh, an exhibition proposal slash manifesto called the Maintenance Manifesto in 1969. And she kind of just talks about that, the, about maintenance, and she identifies the, the life instinct and the death instinct um, and if you read the description of of the death instinct, it sounds a lot like disrupt. <laughs> it's like kind of like, uh, you know, this entrepreneurial spirit, do your own thing, um, break out of the mold. And then the, the life instinct is kind of like maintenance, cyclicality, regeneration, survival, like survival of the species. And that, you know, obviously you need both of those. Like, uh, it, ideally, you'd have a harmonious balance of both of them, but we kind of um, prize one at the expense of the other.
2: I I mean, this resonated for me because we just had a kid and, um, obviously the work of caring for our child is more irreplaceable and and, in a lot of ways more important, but also it's unbelievably hard compared to the other work I do. It's much easier to be a journalist and to be a stay at home parent. Like I'm, I have absolutely no doubt about that. And the way we value the two or certainly undervalue the one is you know, this is by no means a, a new insight, but it just seems like another place where uh, what we have been taught to be attentive to or the way we've been taught. I know you're doing some work in the space a- about how to think about time as money and time is valuable if it is somebody pays for it. But it's not that valuable if nobody pays for it. And it just it seems so now that I, now that I have more visceral experience of this, it seems that our value system in this is so ridiculously off. Um, another thing that just keeps making me think about is like the the intense obsession with getting single mothers to work um as opposed to being able to care for children or a single father, being able to care for a child, it the degree to which we do not, um the degree to which we like talk about being a pro-life culture um or a culture who cares about life, uh, and really, really, really do not prioritize anything in that space is is striking.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think some of it has to do historically with the fact that it's been done for mm-hmm. free for a long time. It was also hidden away in the, the domestic sphere. So it's not, I mean, I think it, it has a lot in common with what I was kind of saying earlier about, um, you know, practices that I file under doing nothing in that they're invisible or they seem yeah. invisible. Um, They certainly appear invisible from a certain point of view, right? Yeah. Um, And so my mom, like when she works with these, um, these kids that are, you know, toddlers, I guess, um, I, I've been home before. Like I see, I'm an only child, so I couldn't see that when I was a child, Mm -hmm. but now that I am there, you know, I can see just like the incredible amount of not just work, but, you know, intuition that it Mm -hmm. takes and it's emotionally exhausting. And, um, and, and it's like, it's just so important to me to insist, um, on this reminder that like, these are the things that keep people alive. Yeah like people alive, that things that keep communities alive. I mean, I talk in the book about the the volunteers at the Rose Garden, like how much work they do to maintain the space that everybody enjoys. And it it's, you know, it's they're not, right, they're not making anything. They're just keeping it the way it is. And you just see how much work disappears, like, it, you know, quote unquote, disappears, right? Like into, into that um, task.
2: I'm glad you use the, the terms disappears and invisible because this does feel to me like a space where the orchestration of attention is really important, that there is a tremendous amount that goes into orchestrating attention towards valuing certain kinds of work. Um, we lionize CEOs, um, you know, there, there's a certain set of visible jobs that we give great um, social power to by making them constantly visible, by reminding everybody to pay attention to them, right? Like, isn't Elon Musk interesting and great? And um, and, or, you know, even for like, I do a kind of work that has also been lionized, right? Like I, I'm on cable news as a pundit and have a podcast and have a byline and, 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 all of this. And the degree to which the, um, lionized work and the work that is actually necessary to keep life going or, or for that matter, society functioning to the point of shaking hands with sanitation workers is really very upside down. It's like one of the great tricks that capitalism ever played. It gets it. It's increasingly oriented towards um, abstract work, which I'm not saying doesn't have value. I like to think that the work I do have val- has value. I'm not saying that running companies that maybe create things that people need doesn't have value, but it's a very strange way that we value time or even that we pay attention to it. And the degree to which the most important functions fade the most into the background, they become the most invisible to us, is uh, I think an indictment of how we're taught to spend our attentional resources.
1: Yeah, and not just that. I mean that that maintenance work is the work that makes all of the other work possible. It's like kind of primary in that way. Mm-hmm. Like nothing else would happen without that. Um, and and the only time you ever remember that is if it stops, right? Right. Um, or if it's interrupted. Yeah. No. I mean, I'm now. I'm just thinking about. I I was an artist in residence at Facebook a couple years ago. Oh, really? What was that like? It was interesting. <laughs> um, it was um, kind of difficult. Um, honestly because i was doing a a project related to the bureau of suspended objects and um trying to do a project there where you don't produce anything didn't seem to i don't know it was like an, a difficult environment to do that in
2: huh. um, it's funny because in a way they don't produce anything right like <laughs> right. they create a context yeah. in which people's pre-existing lives are put up do you know do you see yeah. what i'm saying a bit yeah. Right. Yeah, like yeah. they don't make widgets. I'm not saying they don't produce. Like they produce very powerful ad targeting technologies. But a lot of what's going on is that they've created a way to contextualize the life I'm already living.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I compare it to a dam in the book. That's like you know, there's a there's a flow of something already happening, and it's just kind of capitalizing on mm. that. But um, but actually, the thing I was thinking about was um, there's a lot of people who work there, and then on top of that, there's a lot of visitors every day. So that's a lot of people in a concentrated space. So that's a lot of trash. It's a lot of food. You know, it's a lot of cleaning. Um, and and I I I would do this thing where I would sit in the in the quad area. So there's a there's a book called uh, An Attempt at Exhausting a Place in Paris by an author named George Perec, where he sits in the same place in Paris and writes down everything that happens on a couple of different occasions, huh. like kind of like a police blotter. So I was like, oh, I'm going to do that in the quad. So I, I sat in the quad. And the thing that really like came to the fore, because um, there are certain things that you have to kind of, that, that appear after a certain amount of time anywhere, right? If you pay enough attention, was the amount of maintenance that was going mm. on. Like the number of janitors, the number of security guards, just, you know, like carts with bags of trash being wheeled around. Um, just like, f- yeah, the food, uh, just all of this this kind of other side you know like the human reality right this is a lot of bodies in one space like these are human bodies um and it was just like a really interesting like palpable reminder of that
2: that's such an interesting way of putting that um is there a culture of these technology companies having artists in residence and and if so what 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 is that about
1: um i i don't know necessarily i mean i know of a couple different residencies kind of like this but um I, I've also been in residence at other kind of, you mm-hmm. know, not tech, tech companies, but it's a, it's a range, right? Like sometimes you get like the artist residency where it's kind of, oh, if we put an artist in the space, they'll just somehow magically off gas creativity <laughs> um, to everyone around them. Uh, and those are kind of frustrating because like, that's actually not what, you know, obviously that's not what happens, right? right? Like you need to actually be engaging with something. And then, I mean, and I think some of it also is just like, uh, a pretty sincere like curiosity of, you know, like if we bring someone in with a very different point of view, will they provide a perspective on the situation that we don't have? You know, so I think yeah. yeah, right. Like so um I think and I don't I don't mind that. Like I'm happy to, you know, be that person. Um, I think there's just kind of a tension, obviously, between the way that artists work, um, where, you know, my day of work, quote unquote, is like me walking around like Jack and Square, honestly. It's like when I get most of my work done um, in my head. Um, so there's, that, you know, again, that problem of invisibility. Um, and unfortunately, in some residency programs, you are really expected to externalize your process, um, which if you're a painter is maybe okay. Still probably kind of frustrating, but for me, really a problem because, you know, my materials are like you know when i when i set up my stuff it's like i have a typewriter like just because i think it's funny to write things on a typewriter and then like a computer and i sit at the computer i've even had you know instances where someone wants to do like a video profile of me as an artist and I'll just tell them straight up like there's nothing to make a video of
2: I've had people want to do video profiles of me as a journalist I'm like I just sit here and type <laughs> yeah like, nothing's happening like do they imagine
1: you like running outside with a microphone like running after people they're like we,
2: and I need to be like okay well let's like walk around the halls of this I'm okay but I don't even walk that I just sit you here. just sit yeah like I'm I really I just sit yeah. I mean sometimes there there are reporting trips but um but that's yeah. a, a different thing um, you, you say towards the end of the book that civil disobedience in the attention economy it means withdrawing attention, and you've talked at other points here about learning how to use your attention on different scales. Not to be too prescriptive, but if somebody wants to withdraw attention, they want to begin working on their on, on the quality of their attention. But what do you what do you recommend for them?
1: Um, I have a really sort of uh, simple suggestion. I. I've noticed that in my own writing and describing this to people that I, I constantly use this phrase of grabbing on to things around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, you know, you can try literally doing that, but I mean more with your, with your perception. So um, for me, you know, no matter where I am, unless you're in like some kind of, you know, really hostile environment or something, but um, just kind of looking around at just the the physical details like the physical visual or or auditory details of where you are and really trying to maybe for me that's kind of enough to just do that but but if if it's not kind of trying to hear or see something that you didn't think was there um because there will always be something there um i mean even if it's the most familiar route just last night i was walking on my own block back to my apartment um and I don't know, there was just something about like the quality of the light was just kind of odd. Um, It was probably like being stoned, honestly. (laughs) Like, you know, just I I felt like I was seeing everything from a slightly weird angle and it seemed unfamiliar to me. Even though in the back of my head, I was like, this is my block. Um, So uh, and I really personally love kind of like luxuriating in that state. (laughs) Um, So I think that that uh, obviously this is something that's easier to do in some places than others. Like this is why I so prize, you know, public parks and Um, places with you know things that are growing because for me I can totally like trip out on like just looking at a plant and thinking about how crazy plants are and the fact that they grow but I think you can even do it like on the bus you know just kind of unlinking yourself from the everyday which isn't as hard as it sounds and just allowing yourself to and you might have to push yourself a little bit right like it's like okay I really need to like notice something in here that is surprising to me Um, but but know that there will be something there
2: If someone's been listening to this and they've heard us talk a lot about this art that is based on orchestrating attention, but they don't really know how to find that art or engage with that art. Do you have recommendations for that? I mean, I recognize it's probably different in different places, but are are there ways for people or things they can go look at or see or visit?
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, we're we're very blessed, you know, in the Bay Area. We have really great contemporary art. Um, uh, There's a lot of... um, I think I mentioned the Ellsworth Kelly piece that's in the SF MoMA um, somewhere in the book. But um, I used to work at Gap Corporate and the the Fisher collection, which was, you know, Don Fisher, the founder of Gap, uh-huh. has a huge um, conceptual art collection. Oh, really? Uh, and abstract art. And it was all in the Gap building, which was very weird. And now it's in the MoMA. That's kind of the hmm. whole new section that they they have. And a lot of that, for me, has been really helpful the piece that I describe, it's called, I don't remember the order of the colors, but it's like blue, green, red, black. Uh, that's not the order. But they're just panels of paint that are very matte, like very saturated, that color. And I've totally seen that piece before and just been like, oh, right, like Ellsworth Kelly is abstraction. Okay. You know, and and there was this day that I that I described where I, I actually walked close enough to it to realize that that piece, when you look at each panel the color appears to be like vibrating and and you sort of understand that it has to do with something that's happening between your vision and the painting. It's not something that's in the painting. It's also not something that's in your eye. Um, and so there's this it's very um almost like electric uh-huh. sort of. and and when you you make your way down, each one is different. and i I realize that I kind of have to spend time in front of each one to kind of find out what is in the painting. Um, but that's also an example of how you have to be like willing to meet it in the middle. Right. Uh, Like I literally had to walk close enough to it to (laughs) to realize that that was kind of what it's about. So I think it requires, even for me as like someone who loves conceptual art, like a certain amount of open-mindedness, um, and, and often like reading and just getting a little bit of context around it is like super helpful, but yeah, we have, you know, lots of great stuff like that in the Bay area.
2: So, um, and then let me ask you the question while I used to end the show, which is what are three books you'd recommend that have influenced you that people should read?
1: So I already mentioned the Barbara Ehrenreich book, Mm -hmm. Natural Causes. So that's my number one. If I could airdrop that book over Silicon Valley, I would. Just because it's kind of against optimization, right? Uh, The second book I would recommend is um, called Cults. Um, It's by Mark Galanter or Galanter. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Um, And it is a psychologist's study of different cults, uh, like 20th century cults. Um, and I read it to try to answer the question for myself of why someone would follow a flat earth Instagram account. Hmm. <laughs> and I answered it like I, that book answered <laughs> it for me, uh, it was sort of like, how could you have a belief system that makes so little sense and have people kind of eagerly clustering towards each other around it, um, in need of some sort of like, or in, in kind of search of meaning. Yeah. Um, so that's number two. And then the third one would be the spell of the sensuous. Um, and I think the subtitle is Perception and Language in a More Than Human World. I might be wrong on that. There's definitely Language in More Than Human World in there by David Abram, because that was the book that really kind of set me on the path to to writing my own book.
2: Uh, and your book is How to Do Nothing. Jenny O'Dell, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Jenny O'Dell for being here, to Topher Ruth for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.